The Disciplined Investor is underwritten by Interactive Brokers. Trade crypto for less coin on Interactive Brokers. Commissions just 12 to 18 basis points with no hidden spreads, markups, or custody fees. Learn more at ibkr.com slash crypto. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Too much wooly bully in the system. Markets react to political games being played and end the month of September in the loss column. Black holes worse than bubbles popping. I'll explain all this and much more on episode number 734 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. And welcome to October. September is in the books and it's all done. Sayonara. Too much volatility, too many problems, too many issues that face the markets. And unfortunately, we saw the toll that it took. Anytime that we have Congress doing the dance, it seems that things get a little hairy. In fact, you know, there's an investment strategy out there that looks to put money to work when Congress is out of session. Only when they're out of session and when they're in session, pulls money out of the market and has worked pretty well. Crazy as it may seem, but they do nothing more than muck up the works. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz. Welcome to The Disciplined Investor. This is a podcast where we learn, we find out more about ourselves, about our money and finances, and look to do something about it. Look to make sure that we are financially secure for the future and that, in fact, our overall well-being is taken care of to make sure that, well, simply put, we don't outlive our money. That is a major goal when it comes to financial planning, estate planning. When it comes to the idea of wealth management, we want to make sure that we have enough money to live on for the rest of our lives. And more, and then even pass it on to the next generation wherever possible. But sometimes we... Don't know what to do, where to go, and that's what we're here to do. We're talking about education, talking about the idea of ideas that can give you the impetus to do something and to really make sure that you are set. So I start out the conversation and the opening with this idea of wooly bully. And I want to talk about some truth, some facts today, some things that are a little bit disturbing that are not... Often, we don't like to talk about that much, but I think it's important to really get through some things that are going on that in some circles, they don't talk about. They don't want to really get into it. In others, they just ignore it. And some, they focus to a point where they can't function. And I want to talk about some numbers and throw some things at you because I think there is 
a lot to be learned about what's going on right now. And I think we need to have that wake-up call moment, that time where we're going to say, hey, you know what? Enough ignoring all this. Let's really take a look at what is happening because there are implications to what we're doing right now. And in particular, I'm talking about the debt load, not only here, but around the world. But when I look at how much debt we are carrying as a country, it really is disturbing because historically, the United States was a place where we were strong economy. We had strong financial system. Our debt was not overwhelming to a point where it was breaking the back of our economy, where we had, to a degree, sometimes more, sometimes less, fiscal responsibility on Capitol Hill. And that's not the case now. Hasn't been for the last 15 years, and nobody seems to care. But here's some facts, here's some truths that we really need to focus in on. $28 trillion in debt and counting is where we are right now without adding anything more for that next level of potential stimulus, infrastructure spending. The debt to GDP, this is important. This is like how much debt do we have to how much money that we are generating on an annual basis as a country. And when you think about this, we look at that also to debt to assets, debt to revenue, debt to uh, capital. We look at different metrics inside of a company to see how they're doing from a financial stability standpoint. And we look at all these kinds of metrics. It's called fundamental analysis. And we say, hey, okay, let's look at their current ratio. Let's look at their long-term debt to their short-term debt ratio. Let's look at their their um, return on assets. Let's look at all these different things. And when I start to look at the, jet, the debt-to-GDP ratio of the United States at 125%, it's frightening. It's unrelenting and unrestrained spending without any ramifications because we've learned and been conditioned over the years to just accept this. And it's totally wrong. But you know what? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to step back and say, you know, we're not going to issue any more debt. And then what happens, right? We can't pay our bills. We can't pay the stimulus. What happens to the social system? What happens to the payments to pensions, to government employees, to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid? What happens to these programs? This is a big issue. And we've set ourselves up that the only way that we can pay it is to continually increase the debt outstanding. And it has caused us to now cripple our economic system. The heavy weight that is upon us when we are just trying to do what we do to try to grow our country, to make ourselves a better place as a country and then broken down by company and by employee and back to ourselves is crippled because of this debt load that we have on top of us. Now, just put this in perspective, where were we? Where did we come from? Where are we now? Back in 1960, back in 1960, we had a 52% debt to GDP ratio. And that was considered high. In 1980, things got a lot better. Things came out. We had a better plan and fiscal management. 
and positioning, and we were at a 34% debt to GDP. In the year 2000, two decades ago, just, just like it was yesterday, we are 56%. Since 2008, the excessive amount of debt that was put on the books due to the fact that we had two cataclysmic issues, the financial crisis, that, of course, the Fed didn't see, didn't want to see, allowed to happen. Then COVID, which some of the politicians didn't want to see what was happening and didn't put the clamps down fast. But whether it would have been that or not, really not the point. Point is that we had a shutdown. And again, whether you agree with the shutdown or not is not the point. Point is, we know what happened. And therefore, we had to do things. Now, were they reckless in their spending? Was it ridiculous, the PPP programs and the excess unemployment and all the things that we saw that went out the door? Maybe. But again, that's what happened. It was a reaction to a situation that should never happen again in anyone's lifetime. And it was an absolute, total and complete shutdown of the economy. Therefore, creating the need to give people money in order to eat and survive. So I get it. However, what's really disturbing is that now we're talking about putting even more money af out after we've, I would say, healed 97% of the way. There's still people without jobs. I get you. I understand. But we are still seeing a significant amount of wealth that has been built and the people that are working and getting money are making more money than they ever had before. See, the problem is with how this works and put this back into perspective, not just looking at these big numbers and these percentages, but let's bring this all down to how much debt is there per person in the United States to kind of really ring this home and make you understand why this is such a problem moving forward and where this is going to hamstring the opportunity for us to grow. Forget what the politicians tell you. They're being paid to cheerlead. When we have a debt per person, per citizen, in the U.S. of $86,000 per citizen. How about a debt per taxpayer of $228,000? where we only receive a tax revenue per citizen of about $11,000 per year. So going back to that number where we had debt per citizen of 86,000, take about eight or nine years with all the money that's collected from every citizen, not utilizing for any program other than payback of the debt to pay that off. That's not going to happen. We have multi-decades worth of debt that is sitting on top of us right now. Some other numbers that we really have to look at, things like the U.S. unfunded liabilities, including things like Social Security and Medicare and others, it's $157 trillion or $473,000 per citizen. Now, if we look at what's going on with the, the debt and the debt limit, and what's going on with all this hanky-panky discussions that's going to change from day to day and 
depending on how they come out of this, they're probably just going to simply uh, do an extension, as we know, as we as we see, and then come back and look at this. But basically, the CBO projects that if the debt limit remains unchanged, the Treasury's ability to borrow using extraordinary measures will be exhausted, and it most likely will run out of cash near the end of October or maybe the beginning of November. Now, here's my point. First of all, we know that they could have done something way in advance. Okay, let's just put that aside for a second. I realize they just seemingly can't do anything way in advance. It has to be a struggle up to the last minute, like we see. But my bigger issue is how do we get to a point where the only way that we can fund the government and the payments that are necessary are to have an increase in debt limit, which tells you that we are so in the hole that revenue is not keeping up. If I was to say to you, let's talk about your finances. Let's talk about how your income and your payments, your inflows and outflows work. And we talk through it and you say, okay, here we are in October of 2021. Your rent is due. Your car payment is due. Car insurance is due. And we need to make sure that you have food, electricity for the month. I'm just going to use a number, eh, whatever the number is, $3,000, just, just a number. And I say to you, how are we paying it in October, November, and December? I see that you've paid it, you know, throughout the year in different ways. Well, you say to me, the only way I can do this is if I increase my credit card limits and I go to the bank and get a larger amount available for loan because that $3,000 I do not have coming in in order to pay that for the foreseeable future. The only way that this can be paid is by tapping more debt. That's exactly what's going on here. How insane is that? How insane? The words, listen, I'm not a fool. I've been around the block for a long time. There's nothing new here, but the numbers are extraordinary. The level of debt is insurmountable. The opportunity one day to pay this off is almost zero. And we are leaving this problem to the next generation. We are leaving this, this, this issue to those that follow us without a care in the world because we want to have things now. This is the story. This is the story. And unfortunately, we are breaking the opportunities and disappointing those that are going to follow us. That's really pretty pretty gross. So there's a lot there going on, and I think that when I look at this wooly bully, as I call it, this idea that, hey, things are all right, but it's really kind of surrounded in a mesh and a mush of just this uh, kind of uh, 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 just a cloud, a fog, a, a a distracting ability, inability to see anything. A shroud covers all this because we don't want to believe what's happening and we're just going along our merry way with all this debt on the overhang. Not the best idea I've ever seen. 
So I want to talk about some of the things that I'm I'm thinking about here when it comes to this because there's three major issues that you've been hearing about. The idea of a black swan and a bubble and something that I want to talk to you about that you haven't heard about that I think is much more relatable to what is going on right now rather than simply using and reusing and recycling some of these old theories. Because I think some of these are incorrect. I think some of these are nice words to use in the in the vernacular in the discussion you know the 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 lingo of finance you know it's, oh, it's a bubble oh you know it's a black swan but i think it's much different i'm going to get to that let me tell you about two things first of all uh coming up on the show frank curzio He's going to be coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about earnings season. Right in the middle of earnings season, Frank and I are going to talk about what's going on, what to expect, what's happening. I have a lot of questions for him of what analysts are doing right now in terms of their uh, latest moves and how that sets us up for earnings season, which is probably one of the most important earnings seasons in the last two years is this one coming up right now. I also want to remind you to listen to DH Unplugged each and every week. Myself and John C. Dvorak. We have giveaways and fun games. A bit of a, I would say, a different take on the news. And even a weekly stock picking game. Kind of cool. So that's DH Unplugged. You can find that over at dhunplugged.com or go on to any of your favorite podcast apps or libraries. You'll find it. Just look it up. I also want to talk to you about uh, interactive brokers because uh, the question that I want to ask you is very simple. And that is, are you looking for ways to earn extra income? Hmm? Well, yeah, bet you are. Interactive Brokers has something called the Stock Yield Enhancement Program. And it lets you earn extra income on fully paid shares of stock that are in your brokerage account. So here's how it works. Interactive Brokers lends your shares to traders who pay an interest rate to you to borrow them. You're going to receive 50% of the total income earned. Pretty much it's that simple. You're just going to lend out your shares to somebody, and uh, you're going to get 50% of the income that's earned on it. That's it. You could either do this through your current interactive broker's account or open a new interactive broker's account. Find out more at ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. Wooly bully, I thought we'd talk about some of the wooly bully that's going on. And uh, there's, there's a couple of things that I said that I thought it would be really good to talk about. The idea of three different items, right? The idea of, you know, what's a black swan event and kind of what are people talking about there and, and this whole idea of, you know, is there a black swan event happening or is it going to happen or could it happen? And what would that be? And I'm questioning that, you know, and then we have bubbles in finance and the idea that there's this kind of excessive amount of overall kind of exuberance in the markets, which kind of, I mean, there is some of that in various areas. Yes, no question about that. And then one more thing. So let's start with the idea of what's a black swan. And the black swan theory and the black swan events that can happen. Basically, it's a metaphor 
that can be used to, well, describe an event that comes as an absolute side door surprise. It eventually has a pretty significant impact. And then afterwards, it's inappropriately rationalized that after the fact, well, uh, you know, we, we know what happened there and that's what happened, right? Okay. Now, according to the wiki, the theory was developed by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he uh, explained that the disproportionate role of high profile, hard to predict, and rare events that are beyond the realm of normal expectations in history, science, finance, and technology, and to the non-commutability of the probability of consequential rare events using scientific methods, owing to the way and the very nature of small probabilities, and three, the psychological biases that blind people both individually and collectively to uncertainty and rare events' massive role in historical affairs. Basically, what he's saying here is this, that, you know what, a lot of times these black swan events could have been seen if we weren't so blinded by some of our own, well, our our, our biases. And, you know, the, the song in the background was kind of fun there. <laughs> and um, when we look at the... The, the ones that we've seen in the past, are they really black swan events as described by Taleb? Or were they something that happened that we just utilize the theory that, oh, nobody saw this coming? I mean, come on. look You know, the last one that we saw, was it COVID? Mm, to a degree, that could be considered a black swan event. But I really want to focus in on finance and the one that we saw before that was really in 2000, the range from 2006 to 2010. Really focusing in further and constraining that down, 2008, 2009 really were the times when we could have seen and we didn't. It was right there in front of us and we didn't want to or we were obstructed from seeing what the reality was. Like I said earlier, the Fed didn't see it. They didn't want to see it maybe or couldn't see it. But the fact of the matter is the amount of leverage that was in the system, the the amount of uh, houses that were being purchased on extreme amounts of leverage being turned into, I mean, we, we saw the advent of these TV shows. Remember that? You know, the flip or flop? It was on every channel. Not only that show, but 10 other shows. And the idea to go out and buy a house that you would fix up and then you'd flip for 100000 more after you just bought it for 100000 was kind of on everybody's mind at the time. Now, when we look at black swans, we have to wonder, are there any that are out there that we're not seeing right now? Very difficult to do. I want to put black swans aside because I think black swans are, again, I think as can be described as something that only you can identify in the rear view mirror as something that maybe should have been caught that wasn't. Because it's very difficult to see it otherwise. Now, in bubbles in finance, it's a bit of a different story. When we look at this from an economic term, a stock market bubble or a real estate a bubble or a bubble at any kind of pricing, it occurs when the prices have, have really ramped up significantly without any corresponding increase in the underlying valuation of a company. All things being the same, the stock was valued at $12 and now it's 45. Why? Well, did something change? 
Did the markets change? Did the stock change? Did the company change? Did the revenues? Did the fundamental? What's going on that would have allowed for the stock value to go up that much? And if the answer is that there's nothing, hmm, we have to look at that. Because when we think about a company's valuation, we think about its its business, its underlying business fundamentals. Things like its profitability, how much debt is outstanding. And we look at it in a variety of different economic circumstances. We look at it with regard to major growth periods, recessions, depressions. We look at the core business. Again, all these things coming into play. And when there are these inefficiencies and when prices move significantly higher, when people are stampeding into something, and think about, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, where it's like, oh, man, I you know, I know that that stock is not really priced right, it's really, but if it's moving up, I'm getting in. I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. Everybody's making money. I want to too. And eventually what happens is that price comes back down, back down quickly often to the fundamental value that eventually was set to begin with. Just coming back down to earth. And that oftentimes is enough when we have a bubblicious style of values for things to get pretty pretty dicey. So when you think about bubbles, we really think about uh, price moves that happen in an exceptional measure without a underlying fundamental rationale, nor an outlook that has changed at all or can change or will change. So if we're looking at housing prices that have gone from 100000 in a neighborhood on average to 250 on average only because everybody wants them, there will probably be a point of time those come back to the average rate of increase that the house is valued at over time. So it may take three or four years, but if there was, uh, you know, usually a three, four, five percent increase in the value of the house, maybe that two hundred and twenty thousand dollar house comes back down to one twenty five, one thirty, one forty. Now there could be reasons why there was a fundamental change. Maybe there are no longer enough houses to go around. Maybe interest rates came down dramatically. Maybe something happened where that neighborhood, that area, was very much in. In, in desire, desirous to live in. And we have these situations. We have seen them. We know that they're there. We know sometimes when they're right in front of us but don't want to do anything about them. Okay, we have these, these black swan events that we look at in the rearview mirror. We have these bubbles that pop. And oftentimes we can see where that was and where it should have been. Remember what happened with GameStop, how that moved up so significantly. What's happening right now with natural gas, how that moved up. So what about lumber? What we saw there, coal recently. But then we have something else, a third item that I think is really much more dangerous, something to consider that really hasn't been talked about at all. I haven't heard anybody talk about this. It's black holes, black hole finance. Now, by the very definition, a black hole is a region of space that has a gravitational field so intense that no matter what happens, nor what we see, nothing can escape. Radiation, matter, nothing can escape 
the gravitational pull of a black hole. In finance, I'm going to turn that around a little bit and talk to you about how that looks. It's a place where people of things, especially money, disappear without a trace. For example, we have a moral bound economy that has been a black hole for federal funds. Well, that's truth there, right? Right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Can't argue with that. We have an economy that needs, uh, you know, growth in jobs and all the funds that are coming in are just being sucked up by the black hole of finance. And this black hole that I'm talking about is starting to see, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of the outskirts of it show up with the misuse and inefficiency by utilizing the Fed funds and stimulus and the debt to finance the economy. Inside a black hole, there's nothing. Nothing lives, nothing escapes, nothing exists. And the black hole that we have that I really want to focus in on is the, the issue that we started the discussion today off with about debt. The massive debt. Because there's no way for us to pay it off without killing the economy by, I don't know, raising taxes. And there's no way to, to survive long-term debt with the debt load so high. And it's going to be impossible to continue to issue new paper if there's going to be higher rates in the future. The debt service will become more and more difficult. How does that even work out? If you think about that for a second, if we have increasing interest, and this is why the, this is why the Fed has been so absolute about not raising rates for a long period of time because they know that would make it incredibly difficult to pay for by the government. And here's my beef with this crazy amount of wooly bully right now. There's no accountability. I mean, these, these politicians are pumping as much crap into these bills. You know, the sausage factory we talk about, there's a lot of fat going into this right now. No one really has any idea what the true cost of any of this is. We're told that there's a great deal of transparency. We're told that it's in our best interest. No way. Absolutely not. We see this every day with all the political wrangling that's going on. And now, as I've been hysterical about for what years, it seems we finally see in plain sight the lack of integrity with the Fed. We've known about it with the Congress for a long period of time and their quote-unquote insider trading that's really legal and the things they do on a regular basis in their favor. And here we are in a time when confidence is waning, in a time that there are uncertainties and politicians are playing around with the U.S. of A.'s credibility in the world and as the world's leader and most credible place. Economically, financially, etc. It seems like the Fed is more concerned about making their own portfolio grow than they are about the U.S. and the stability. I mean, how stupid are these people? Or how stupid are we? for allowing this to happen. How stupid are we? I've never been one that has talked about audit the Fed or, or any of that. No, I, I think they should be an independent independent party, but how independent and what 
uh, are we allowing them to do? Are we allowing them just to pretty much make their own rules up and be their own uh, judge and jury? Are we allowing just anything to happen without any oversight? I, I don't think so. I think they've gotten a lot away with a lot over the years and they've misused it and abused it. And just allowing them to retire early after we've seen that they're trading futures and they're trading multi-million dollar transactions of individual stocks and of real estate investment trusts with mortgage-backed bonds that are behind them, what is being paid for and propped up by the Fed? No, absolutely not. Don't start me down that path. Talked about the last few weeks and on DH Unplugged. Somehow we need to start really thinking about protecting ourselves from these idiots. I mean, both sides of the aisles are guilty of playing politics for their own benefit. And I'm here to tell you right now, there is a black hole that is sucking, sucking us in. Sucking us all in financially. And this needs to be addressed because without focusing in on this, we are going to find that the excessive amount of debt will bring us down. I mean, it's clearly the elephant or the woolly bully in this discussion in the room, right? No one seems to be talking about this anymore. It's kind of hush-hush. Ah, the debt. Used to be something we used to talk about. Oh, look at the national debt. Oh, my gosh, look at that. Look at how much money we owe and look at that and look at it go. You know, the national debt clock and all that, right? It's as important as ever. And we can't just pretend it's not there. So when we look at what is happening right now, and I think that we really need to focus in on this because this impacts our portfolios. And now you're probably asking yourself, okay, well, Andrew, hey, if I buy into this, and, and, and it sounds reasonable, I don't think you're far off. It's not something I haven't thought about on my own or had discussions about with others. I mean, it, it's something that, you know, every once in a while you start looking at the numbers and it's like, wait, 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 wait. What happened to millions? Now they're billions. Wait a second, now billions or trillions? We used to laugh at the Zimbabwe dollar. We used to laugh at the yen. Trillion yen program is going out. It's like, <laughs> what does that even mean? And you get these Zimbabwe dollars, one sitting on my desk for, I don't even know, like 400 quadrillion. <laughs> What's a quadrillion? They really screwed up. Here we're talking about trillions of dollars, not once, not twice, not three times, like five or six times we're talking about this massive stimulus 3.5 trillion, 1.2 trillion, 4.2 trillion, 28 trillion dollars of debt. I mean, the trillions of numbers, all this, where'd all these zeros come from? And there's not inflation? Hello? Somebody wake up because it's not so hidden anymore. It's right out in the open. So you're probably asking yourself, okay, I'm buying in. Okay, good. Listen, what do you got for me, Horowitz? What do you got? And I got to ask you the question. Well, how do I protect myself? I mean, is that what I'm hearing you say? How do I protect myself? Should I protect myself? And I think there are a few items on the table that we should probably look at right now. At a time we have earnings season coming up, time when we're spending ridiculous amounts of money that's going to go unchecked, but time when the credibility is lost to the Fed, in a time when we're seeing that the potential for 
a slowdown on a global basis is starting to really pop up. And at a time where we have a black hole of finance, the debt load that is going to be sucking us all in and not allowing us out. Again, creating a place where no matter or radiation or money can escape. I mean, the questions you ask, right? Hey, should I have, should I have protected myself from the political idiocy that's going on that we saw with the budget and debt ceiling? And well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. We pro probably not because um, there's going to be a resolution some way or another. And even if it's delayed, like we've seen many times in the past, it's probably going to be better to trade it than just, or maybe hedge it. Yeah. Than to just simply say I'm out because this is the end all be all situation. This politics at its best. What we really need to focus in on is the other stuff. And there's no right answer uh, because there is a belief that some of the stimulus, and even though we're spending excess money and increasing the debt, is actually going to benefit the economy. Of course, you know, money comes in for infrastructure programs, the infrastructure to build bridges and roads and dams and, uh, you know, put in all sorts of green energy and climate-friendly uh, types of energy sources around the country. Okay, that's something. There's some, some, some truth in that being an expansive policy. And the idea that we're going to do a human infrastructure program, whatever the heck that means, which looks like we're just going to give money out to people. Well, there's money in the hands of people, and that will do things that will you know, go out into savings and increase probably the stock market and allow for traders to put more money into various cryptocurrencies and then also live and buy and do. And that's all good for a consumption standpoint. But this is not the issue, though. Once again, this, I, I, it's the woolly bully. I mean, it's pulling our attention towards this and away from what is the bigger problem. Right now, this, this kind of, this shroud of don't look here, look there. And that's about rising rates. Rising rates, however this happens, is going to really create the stress in the system. And that's what we need to focus in on. The rising rates due to the fact that we've issued too much debt and our credibility has gone down. The rising rates because, you know what, there's just so much of this quantitative easing that can go on. The rising rates because, you know what, we've, we've, we've neutralized the COVID impact on the economy. And even though they will try their best to keep rates as low as possible for a long period of time, markets have a way of overriding that. And that's what we need to watch for now. When I say now, I don't mean exactly today. Rates are still low enough to be very expansive in nature and beneficial for the economy. Clearly a 0 to 0.25% Fed funds rate is pretty good. 1.345%. On the 10-year, ah, not bad. I mean, when we start to see that scoot, that move, that rise, whether it's a slow, drawn-out move or a parabolic move to the two-and-a-half range for the 10-year, that's when we have to realize there is going to be a major crimp on earnings, on ability to pay debt, on the outlook for the economy. And once again, I'm going to answer your question with 
something I've been preaching about for a long period of time. So I want to make sure you get this. And the answer is so, it's such a solid answer. It's so pure. It's so good that it answers a lot of these issues. And that is to the question of, should I protect, how do I protect myself? Should I protect myself? What should I be doing about all this? And it's a very simple one word answer that has a lot to go with it. It's called diversification. I'm going to preach this idea, diversification, and specifically having a diversified position in bonds when it comes to this. Now, you may say, well, I don't have any bonds. Well, you may have some bond-like exposure. You may own some real estate. You may own some utilities. You may have some other stocks that are impacted by rising rates, more so than others. So the diversification, when I talk about it specifically in bonds and fixed income, yes, that's one thing, but also the idea that you have to be diversified within your portfolio of equities, domestic, international, maybe your real estate holdings, maybe your, your inflation-protected issues, but diversified there too. I mean, we can work around the equity markets, right? But when it comes to bonds, think about what is going on right now. So here's what I'm telling you. If you have a portfolio of mutual funds that have, and you may not even know, that you have exposure to fixed income, we are shortening up our exposure continually. We're limiting the duration, keeping it tight. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, no idea in the world, like, what is he talking about? I understand when he talks about a stock and PE ratios and things like that, but what is he talking about? Shortening duration and limiting exposure? and What, what, what is that? Well, we need to chat. You need to look in your, your 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 situation very carefully under those circumstances because you know what? I've seen times when you, ah, how bad can bonds be? And I don't even know how much exposure I have. It's important to look at how much exposure you have in your portfolio to bonds and what those are because some of these are impacted much differently than others during rising interest rates, during a period of time where there is no change in interest rates and a time when interest rates are coming down a time when the dollar is moving up or down or staying consistent. So I think that's really important. You need to make sure that your portfolio, and if you don't know, do I have bonds? I mean, I don't know. Let's say, hey, Andrew, I got this uh, asset allocation fund, or I have one of these um, these funds that just have uh, something like a rotation blank 2042 on it. Well, maybe you have bonds in there. Maybe in your 401k plan, maybe you're in your IRA. These are things that we look at and you need to look at. The exposure of duration, the maturities, these are things you need to really be looking at right now with the idea that the probability that rates are going to be higher in the future than lower. And they can hurt you, especially if you are not directly in the individual bonds and you're invested in ETFs and mutual funds. And if, in fact, you are invested in ETFs in your fixed income area, red flag. I know we want to pay the least possible cost, but you know what? There are more, more costs involved than just the absolute fee of the investment. And we've done study after study and came up with a pretty big paper a number of years ago, maybe two years ago, that showed the impact and the differential of utilizing ETFs for the majority of fixed income exposure as compared to a mutual fund with an active manager. Now, put all your ideas aside for a second. 
if you hold ETFs that are in the fixed income area, I do want to talk to you. Send me a note. Tell me what's going on. Because you need to be alerted to some of the issues that go on with an environment of rising interest rates in that circumstance. And what can happen as we start moving around and we have maybe skew events that occur. Especially depending on duration, maturity, and how they're structured and where the positioning is. You can go over to the Disciplined Investor, click on the Ask Andrew button, send me a note, and we'll just take a look really quickly to make sure you are set up properly, okay? All right, shifting over. Let's shift over to the uh, area of the economics. I think there's some important things going on globally. I don't mean just to be this whole negative episode. Sorry, sorry. But there's a lot going on that we really need to kind of uh, pay attention to. Again, this doesn't mean that the market's going to crash or anything like that. Don't take this the wrong way. I think you need to be set up properly and invested properly in the right places right now more so than we did, for example, a year ago. But globally, there's some worrying signs. I mean, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And, and I've been noticing this correlation. This correlation offset by four to six months, we'll call it, of what happens to, say, in China and then over here. I remember first seeing this back in, uh, I think it was, I think it was 2008, when they fell into a recession before we did during the housing crisis and the financial the financial crisis that happened back then. I, I remember that it was interesting that they entered into a recession before we did. And then it took a number of months and we got there and everything collapsed. But they also came out of it before we did. Even though the situation was really created here, you know, with the failing banks and the real estate bubble and all that stuff that went on. They also came out of it months before we did. And there are several possible reasons that I looked at back then. But I think the number one thing was that they acted quickly to shut down the situation. Kind of like what they did during COVID. And I'm not going to get into that whole discussion of China and COVID. But kind of like what they did, they just shut it down. They stopped the bleed really quickly. And they could do so because there's a lot less red tape and argument in China due to the way that they're structured as a, well, a communist country, of course, than what we have over here. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm starting to get the feeling from what I see anecdotally and from the data that we're starting to see some of the same things happening right now. China economics is slowing down precipitously. Markets coming in hard. Hours are starting to roll. And we already know the policy response. So there's not much to talk about. We, I mean, how much more can we do? We can take rates down any further? No. They have a lot more room. And they're trying to purposely clean up their debt problem. The latest eco numbers here in the United States are showing that that breakneck pace of employment growth is definitely moderating. That should be expected. I don't think there's any surprise there. I don't think that anybody would say, oh, yeah, we can keep that kind of those numbers going forever and ever and ever. No, it's going to slow down every once in a while. And I think that we were in a situation where we saw such a great level of growth that it made sense that we're starting to see that kind of slow. I mean, possibly some of the causes... Delta, the variant, caused a little bit of a pause. 
We see supply chain issues that are creating havoc for buyers and some goods. At the same time, we're we're seeing that there's some pretty amazing numbers out there, right? This week we saw a stat that was nothing less than wow. I mean, we saw the case Shiller number up 19% on a year-over-year basis for the top 20 cities. That is impressive. 19% year-over-year. So while that's great, I'm not quite sure that pace is going to continue either. No. In fact, we're starting to see, not to throw too much cold water on this, we're starting to see some, some things happening already, like a report I read this week about the percentage of homes on the market currently that are dropping prices instead of increasing prices. They're dropping prices up a few percentage points over the last few weeks. I mean, what does this mean? Is it is it harder to sell? You know, prices are ridiculous, maybe. We also saw some retail companies reporting some ugly numbers, not just a miss, but some really ugly and some really disturbing outlook. Sherwin-Williams adjusted their outlook twice in the past two weeks. That's really about supply chain issues more than anything else. And we own a small, very small position for clients and looking at just what that mean, mean for long-term profitability. It does seem that there is a backlog, so when that kind of clears, it will be very good for them. But then we see Bed Bath & Beyond. Stock dropped 25% towards the end of the week on some very, very rough outlook numbers. Just a, a terrible margin update, lower sales, traffic, nothing looked good. And then we saw the major retailers like Kohl's and Dillard's and Macy's all get whacked on a report that Vietnam is having some difficulty. Something we know because many of the factories are shut down due to COVID. And as such, they're not able to produce anything. If you live in Vietnam and your area that you live is actually shut down due to COVID, what you could do is either not work or live at the factory. Live at the factory, you're amongst a small amount of people that are working there and in a bit of a bubble, of the COVID bubble, if you will, and you're not going out for anything. But this is causing a major problem because a lot of clothing is done in Vietnam. Remember, we had a lot of clothing done in China for a long period of time. We said, hey, they're getting expensive. Let's shift it over to places like Malaysia and Indonesia and, and Thailand and Vietnam. So Vietnam being shut down is a big problem. We're seeing that other companies are also telling us time after time, company after company, pricing pressures. Yeah, this is in the face of, of, of Powell telling us there's no inflation or there is inflation, but it's transitory. Until he came out this week saying, you know what? Really frustrated with inflation because it should have been going down by now. Everybody knew that it wasn't going down. What in the world were they thinking? Got to get these old codgers out of there and bring some new people in there. I mean, they're terrible. They're the worst predictors of anything. They could goose an economy. They can goose a stock market. No question about that. But the prediction mechanism, let's just lay off that and just go with the fact that, hey, you know what? Stocks are too low. Let's juice them. That's what they should be. That's, their, that's what they do. The other thing that's happening is that analysts are refining or better said dropping their estimates for the S&P 500 and for companies out there, which is actually a good thing. I'd rather right now have them drop their estimates a bit and then come into the numbers to make it a bit easier for companies to meet expectations instead of pushing those numbers up and then having a much higher hurdle. That's just a mechanical situation in there. So where do we go from here? 
I mean, putting all this noise aside from the debt ceiling budget, the stimulus, these the woolly bully and the, the black holes and the bubbles and the the black swans. Let's be realistic. It's hard to keep up with this earning growth that we've seen for a long period of time. Companies just can't keep that pace up. And that was a unique period in history. The reopening trade and getting leaner and leaner and leaner and then realizing that the technology could take over and profitability went up. So we have what we have done is we brought a bit of cash up in our portfolios, particularly in our trading strategy, a few percentages over the last couple of weeks. We're keeping a lean uh, move, a slight lean towards um, uh, value, short duration bonds, inflation protected positioning. And, and, and I will tell you, we're not making any sudden moves. If we get a new portfolio in for a client that's, let's say, cash, we're using a dollar cost averaging feature, multifaceted, where we utilize, as you know, a time-based dollar cost averaging. And we also look for opportunities and opportunistic dollar cost averaging to get you in that whole one foot in, one foot out that we've talked about. But we're also careful not to get too far ahead of the curve right now. I am not going to push anyone too greatly in one direction or the other because we don't want to get ahead of it. There's a lot happening, there's a lot of moving parts, and a lot of this can change on the fly, especially when we have so much interaction with central banks. But clearly, those people that have come into us, and we have a portfolio of positions that are, we'll call it what was right for a year and a half ago, is just not necessarily right for now, some of them are, but you know, you have to look at that. Where are the positions going? Now, we were a bit wrong a year ago with our value positioning. We think we're kind of right with it now, and that's working out much better in 2021. So, we were a year early with that, and that taught us a really good lesson in terms of how this is operating this economy right now, which is a kind of a, a present moment versus a look into the future. That's why you don't make any major moves about what you think is going to happen in six months because. It is so fluid on a much more current basis, the markets. So that's what we're doing right now. A lot to think about, a lot to digest, a lot to go through. And I realize that you're wondering, where is it coming up with this stuff and why? Because I really do think that right now we are at a crossroads. Right now, I think that you are very vulnerable in certain aspects of a portfolio, if it's just simply allowed to just let go and do its thing without oversight on how you're invested and what's going on. I think we're entering into a much different phase of the economic process of the cycle right now. And that really needs you to think about what you should be doing. And if you understand the whole tenets of being a disciplined investor, that means making tough choices, hard choices, but yet not being reckless. Doing it thoughtfully. Doing it in a way that is methodical and well thought out. So I think the time is here. I think with the, the, the area that the Fed has told us that they're going to start slowing down on their bond purchases, we're seeing a place like Mexico and other countries are actually raising their rates I think there's a time that is here. It's very much apparent. And on top of that, where we have these things like these black holes of suction that is sucking in 
due to the massive debt that we have to look at this as, you know what? It's different than it was two years ago, three years ago. And that would advocate, and anybody with, anybody with a good sense and a fiduciary responsibility advocate that you look carefully at what you're doing right now and make good decisions. We're going to end it there. I really think you get the point. Hopefully you got the point. If you didn't get the point, go back to the beginning and play this again. Eventually it will get stuck in your head pretty darn well. I want to thank you for joining us. We'll be back uh, next week with some great stuff, some good shows, a really good show. Uh, on the Discipline Investor. Make sure to tell your friends, tell your family, sign up, subscribe, go to thedisciplineinvestor.com, check out what's on there, check all that out. And if you want to talk, just drop me a line. I'm friendly. I'm right here for you. I'll answer any questions you have. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.